our vacancy rate has been 0.4%, I think, was the highest we had last year. And that's pretty powerful. When we're talking 4,500 properties, the end of last month, I had four vacant properties on our books. Welcome, Closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Hannah Gill, the managing director at Independent Property Group, the largest real estate and property management agency in Australia's capital, Canberra. Hannah stepped up to managing director after spending six years as a BDM, where she built a successful new business and a leasing team of 12 people. In this interview, Hannah shares where most property management entrepreneurs go wrong when it comes to building out a sales team. So if you've struggled with that in the past, if you've made a hire or two and it just hasn't worked out, or if you have a sales team in place right now, but you're wondering if they're performing at maximal capacity, then this is the episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the show, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. The more reviews we get, the better we are able to recruit top tier guests Let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks, Jordan. Pleased to be here. So, Hannah, I just want to start here. How did you get into the property management industry? I was actually looking for a career rather than a job. And it was just after my 21st birthday and I sort of was getting sick of working a number of casual jobs. And I thought, what what opportunity or what industry will create a pathway and a career for me? And property management seemed like a really interesting place to start out. And that was uh, 10 years ago this year. Wow, fantastic. So first role, where in the business did you start? Yeah, as many of us do, I was sort of throwing the deep end as a property manager. I didn't know much about what that actually meant in real terms. Uh, it sounded interesting to me, as I said, um, and I just sort of learned from there and found my way through experiences and, and learned from the people around me. Makes a ton of sense. A lot of people start in that role, but eventually you transitioned more into the business development function of the business. How did that happen? Were you pushed into that role or was that just something that stood out as a place that you wanted to navigate towards? Yeah, it certainly stood out as something that was really interesting to me. The capacity to get in front of people and build new relationships was really appealing. Um, having sort of, as we do, inherited a portfolio that wasn't necessarily in the best shape and you've got some disengaged clients. I found that at the time as a property manager, a really great challenge to improve those relationships. But then I thought I'd love to be able to get to the to the front of this relationship at the very beginning and set the expectations right from the start. And I sort of fell into the role naturally. We'd had a long-term BD in the team and she left. I'd kept putting my hand up saying I was interested. And I actually recall I got a call on my on a day off asking me to come in to have a chat about the role. And the rest sort of just fell into place from there, which was really exciting. 
So do you think that your background as a property manager, the better positioned you to act in a business development role in light of the fact that you actually understood what it looked like to hand that client off, basically have them get onboarded as opposed to just having a sales background and maybe not necessarily having as much context for what that client relationship looked like in a more long-term perspective within the business? Yeah, look, I think having the property management background, I can attribute to a huge part of my success in the in the BD role. While I didn't have the, a lot of the sales skills around scripts and dialogues with a background in PM, they were very easy to learn and they are very easy to learn those sorts of skills. But just having that really thorough, in-depth knowledge of property management, uh, that really helped with my success as a BD. So you mentioned that you were thrown into the deep end with property management. Did you receive any training in your business development role? Did you also just kind of figure that out as you went? (laughs) With my uh, predecessor moving to a different agency, I had a week with her. I remember attending an appraisal with her and watching her do it. And I remember her attending an appraisal with me, which I fumbled my way through. And it was probably the worst 40 minutes of my client's life, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it was, I always liked being thrown in the deep end because I could find my groove and I could put systems into place that really worked for me rather than sort of inheriting uh, systems that I might have become accustomed to but may not have been the best for me in, my, in the way I operate. So I, I was quite happy with that. And although it was a bit overwhelming, I think it was the best thing for me. Wow. All right, guys. So as you're listening at home, realize that we've just met the exception to the rule. While that is really inspiring what you just articulated, I think for most people, they actually prefer to have some training rather than... I I hear what you're saying. What, What I hear you saying is being in a position where you didn't have any training, you were able to ask why on the deepest level and kind of build like from first principles as opposed to just having this is the way it's always been done and this is the way that you should do it. At the same time... Surely, as you've kind of got into that role and put in some other people behind you, there was a bit more training and um, scripts, dialogues, whatever it may be. What does that look like for you now? What do you view good training looking like for somebody in a BD role? That's an endless sort of answer, isn't it? I mean, I don't think you can ever do too much training. While I was happy to take the initiative, as you've alluded to, and ask those why questions, I certainly wouldn't want or expect my team members to be doing that every time someone joined us. So absolutely, you're right. Once I sort of found my footing, I put, I really defined the processes and the systems and what worked well for me. And we was able to replicate and train others with those systems. But what works well, I think, for uh, business development training is really looking at holistically. Absolutely, there's a place for scripts and dialogues and, and they are important. I think the confidence around networking, around negotiation, um, and the capacity to think on your feet with with numbers, with uh, finding a talking point of commonality. So really the training needs to be holistic. It can't just be on scripts and dialogues. And that's what I found has helped my team grow quite quickly. Hmm. Okay. Well, so let's back it up even further than that. Let's talk about positioning. Within the market, where is your company positioning? How is the branding or the positioning differentiated from other companies? And how do you 
train your staff to articulate that in a way that feels different than just my script and dialogue is better than your script and dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're actually celebrating 60 years in under a number of different brands. So 60 year celebration of our group this year. We've evolved a lot over that time in our, in our marketplace. We're a really well-known brand. Uh, we do a lot in the community space, which in our community in Canberra, that's that's really appreciated and that's really valued. We've got a charity foundation, for example, that, that the team are quite active in, in participating in so that's really important to us but in terms of the brand itself the positioning is really around our success our capacity to share previous results um, our ability to talk about what we have achieved and why that's relevant and important for our clients that's really where we're able to win new business because of our scale and because of our systems and processes we are consistently exceeding the marketplace expectations and and that's what that's what wins us business so what are some of the specific claims? Like how can you actually articulate that in a way that somebody can really um, believe by hearing like specific numbers or metrics? What does that look like in practice? Yeah, sure. So I mean, at the moment, we manage around 4,500 properties and uh, vacancy rates in Canberra for the last 12 months have sort of sat around 1% to 2% depending on the area. Our vacancy wow. rate has been 0.4%, I think, was the highest we had last year. And that's pretty powerful. When we're talking 4,500 properties, the end of last month, I had four vacant properties on our books. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a reflection, obviously, of the market to some degree, but it's also a reflection of our capacity to, to have people on the ground showing prospective tenants and getting them into the right property as quickly as possible. And obviously, for an investor, that's a pretty big selling point. Yeah, I love that. So I always love hearing math actually get brought into the equation. There are so many banal generalized claims, things like, honestly, what you just mentioned, we've been in the business for so many years, you know, that's great. But what is that really going to do for me as an investor? But what you just mentioned about no downtime, well, that's money in, that's money in hand, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's the thing. There's no value in our marketplace. Everyone can say they've been around for a while. So it's certainly drilling down into what, what that actually means in real terms and how that's going to make our clients money and create wealth for them. So in terms of what the, the structure of the business looks like, is the property management side of the business any larger or smaller than the brokerage? How do those two operations function together and how large are they proportionately? Uh, so we've got six sales teams under the independent brand. They're partnership offices and the property management business is wholly owned by the group. Uh, we do have shareholders, of course, which, which are part of the group. So we do receive referrals and we work very closely with our sales team for the opportunity to get referrals. Uh, but a good opportunity for us is also that we have quite a big project marketing team. So in Canberra, there's a lot of new developments being built. Uh, they have been for the past five or so years. And those, those new developments have really been the cream on top for us. Um, we were able to double the size of our rent roll in a four-year period, predominantly from project stock. Okay. So just to be clear, we're talking about new construction? Yeah. Yep. Like high-rise, townhouse developments, apartment blocks. There's a lot of that happening in our market at the moment. So being able to capitalize on that and work with local builders and developers has been a really great opportunity for us to grow quite quickly. So what exactly does that relationship look like in practice? In my time as a BD, that's when we really started to be able to leverage those relationships. So I work still very closely with builders and developers right across Canberra. They know that we've got the scale and the staffing to be able to service a development of 70 or 100 units at one time and get them leased very, very quickly within, you know, well and truly low days on market. So for us to be able to work with a client and pick up 75 listings in one hit is 
hugely beneficial, but they also have faith in our capacity to do that because we've done it time and time again. Got it. So you're talking about a situation where the builder, the developer maintains the property, not new construction where they're selling to independent landlords and referring you as a manager? Uh, There's a mix of both. Um, I've probably got about half a dozen key developer clients that I work with. And as an example, I've, I've picked up 24 last week and another 48 the week before from those sort of clients. But there's still a there's still no shortage of individual mum and dad investors buying in these developments as well. Um, it just depends on the developer and the location of their site at the time. So that sounds amazing to me. And obviously, getting referrals from the brokerage side of the business is also really exciting. How do you view that processing those types of leads, though, versus outbound prospecting? If you were to bring on a new BD, would you have them doing a mix of both? Do you segment those roles? Because obviously, inbound is very different than outbound. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm a big believer in servicing the relationships that are closest to us. So, my focus Mm -hmm. is working really closely with our sales team, our finance team, and our, our current clients in property management, because I believe there's so many opportunities that generally remain untapped in those relationships. So my current new business team focus on existing relationships. Because of the scale we've got, we we don't have a huge need to focus outbound and we really grow through word of mouth internal referrals more than anything, which is obviously a great position to be in. Um, In terms of outbound, it's more around how can we enter the market in a strategic way and provide something new to clients that doesn't currently exist. So For example, we've just rolled out uh, a long lease program, which basically we're offering to owners and tenants that if they join us, we are happy to sign a lease for three to five years. And by doing that, we save the owner a lot of money. We save additional wear and tear. The tenant has peace of mind around what the rent increase is going to look like year on year. So rather than just hitting the market and saying we're the best, we're actually trying to find ways to provide a new opportunity to the market that doesn't currently exist. So in terms of working the existing clients that you have and particularly helping them buy more properties, is that more reactive? Do you wait for them to raise their hand? Do you reach out to them and ever put deals in front of investors for purchasing a new property? How do you actually get existing clients to buy more properties that you can manage? That's probably my big project at the moment, connecting those dots. Currently, it's reactive more often than not, but I believe that we're in a position where we can be proactive about it. And that comes back to conversations around property health checks, uh, reviewing of interest rates, reviewing of equity in property, and then actually acting as like a concierge buyer's agent service from the property management team because they already trust us, they have the relationship with us, and finding them additional properties from our department. That's probably my big project at the moment. I'm, I'm mapping that out and rolling that out and looking to recruit for that position right now. So when you say finding them properties from your department, if you have a client that says, hey, I'm going to be selling my unit, will you ever put that inventory, that home in front of existing clients to consider potentially purchasing it from another existing client? Yeah, that's the idea. Or for a tenant to purchase. And not only not only stock that exists in our rent role, but stock that our projects team might be selling. For example, if we have a, a client that we uh, do a health check for and they've owned the property for five years, we might refer them to our finance team. Let's say they've got forty, fifty thousand dollars equity. That's going to buy you another investment property in Canberra. So then, going back to them and saying, "What are you looking for in a property? Let us find it for you." So we're creating the opportunity, we're taking the hassle away for them, but it, obviously the flow and effect is that we, we get additional business out of it. 
So you're saying that that's a challenge for you to, to flesh out that program. Do you think that that is something that any existing property manager could take on? Or do you view that as potentially being a more specialized role for somebody to make that a bigger part of their focus as an individual acting in more of a, a concierge type fashion? Yeah, to start with, I certainly want to structure it as a new position. We've got a really great team of people here, but they're already doing so much in their in their day-to-day role as property managers. And this role really requires those sales skills, um, subtly, obviously, but the necessity to be able to ask the question, to be able to get in front of someone and have a really holistic understanding around finance and around interest rates and so on. My team could do that, but I, I'm conscious that I really would like them to continue to keep building on the relationships they have rather than trying to upsell and cross-sell to those clients. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the hiring process for somebody in the BD role. What are you looking for? What does the hiring process look like? And what does that initial onboarding process look like? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, traditionally, we've always recruited for those BD roles and even leasing roles internally. My team tend to view the sort of natural progression from PM to leasing to new business. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting because I know a lot of businesses sort of have different views on that as well. But that's, that's been the case here for a long time now. More recently, I've actually gone external. Um, I've had a couple of key roles I've needed to fill, really high-level roles. So I've recently recruited um, what a role we've called Head of Property Management Growth. So uh, that's not a BD role. That's a role looking for strategic business opportunities, which they can then flow through to prospecting and business development. What it looks like, I guess, in terms of hiring, I tend to try to have a pipeline of prospective recruitment in place. Um, just like listings. Uh, if I can keep talking to the best people in the industry in my market, build relationships with them, when the time is right for them, they'll come to me. And that's exactly what happened with, with that recent role I just mentioned. So this may be somebody that you know for 12 months or 24 months before they actually come to work for the company. Absolutely. And I'm and Canberra's a really small place in terms of the, the industry. And I'm certainly not interested in trying to poach or screw over another business as an example. But certainly if people can see why we're an attraction business and an attraction brand, uh, I don't believe there's any harm if they seek me out for the opportunity. What does that mean to you, attraction business, attraction brand? Look, to me, one of the most important things in my business is our team culture. I really put a lot of energy into trying to build a culture that is engaging and empowering for our people, really understanding what makes them tick and celebrating their successes really publicly. And that might be personal successes or that might be business successes. If I can have a team of people that just absolutely love what they do, I believe the client experience will come naturally. Yeah, there's always a big gap between the aspiration of culture and the actual implementation. Are, is there anything you would describe as some of the sacrifices that you guys are willing to make internally in order to actually facilitate culture? Because who wouldn't want great culture? But what's the bright line in your mind between that being a truism versus something that's actually re- being really manifested? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, we probably pay on the lower end of the scale in our marketplace we pay our staff on the lower end of the scale that's not necessarily right or wrong I'm not sure that's that's always sort of been the way but what's interesting is people will still come to us because they believe in what we do and they love the the feel and the atmosphere of the place and they'll leave long-term relationships from other businesses because they know that that's available to them even though they might be taking a pay cut and I think that's a real reflection of 
getting the culture right because, you know, money obviously does talk. Yeah, the prestige factor. Yeah, yeah. So going back to what I was asking you about previously in terms of the recruiting, you're saying that the track that you've described is moving from property manager to leasing to business development. And so as you described that, I would be interested to hear your take on temperament. You feel that the temperament is flexible enough in those roles because traditionally, certainly on the sales versus the property management side, it's a very different temperament that people are being recruited for. How do you view that property manager mindset and skill set being flexible enough for somebody to move over into the BD role? Is that because you guys are not as focused on on outbound? Walk me through your thoughts there. Yeah, I think two parts to it. Traditionally, we've had people in PM roles who have the capacity to sell. They've been really keen. They're they're not afraid to pick up the phone. They're not afraid to get in front of people. And those that progression has been natural. Currently, as I just mentioned, I've recently gone external. I've recruited uh, the head of property management growth role and also a BD role, both externally. And the reason I did that was because I didn't actually feel at the time we had people in our team who were able to translate that skill set. I mean, obviously, having the property management knowledge is fantastic. But as you mentioned, that temperament, that capacity to sell, I felt we didn't have the right fit for the level and the scale of leads that we're working on at the moment. So I went external this time. Now, how will you plan on keeping that BD accountable? What does management and oversight look like? I assume that the culture, part of the way that the culture manifests itself is in not micromanaging people, but at the same time, accountability is key. How do you balance that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel quite fortunate at the moment having a new BD team come together, obviously, with new two new people. The atmosphere and the drive is just, you know, tangible. You walk into the office and just there's just a buzz around and they're really pumped. They're pumped to get their goals as a team, not just individuals, which I absolutely love. In terms of ongoing accountability, obviously, that honeymoon period always does sort of uh, phase off at some stage. In terms of accountability, it's a matter of uh, weekly reporting, weekly training, reviewing why we've lost leads and reviewing why we've won leads. My guys are all very target-driven, so it's quite easy to say, hey, guys, this month I need you to list 30 properties and they will go to the end of the earth to get 30 properties, which is makes my job very easy. So what are your thoughts on the type of compensation structure that actually gets you the results that you want? Because obviously with compensation and with incentives, it's a really powerful thing. It can either incentivize things in the right way or the wrong way. Have you guys iterated through various compensation and incentive models in that BD role? And what's your advice there? Yeah, my advice is just to keep it as simple as possible. Um, I would agree with you there's a right way and a wrong way to, to engage and, and motivate. Certainly, I think that it's important to keep the base salary relatively low comparatively uh, and then really build the commission quite high. So uh, our incentive structure for property listing ranges between 100 to 400 for a listing depending on what rate they sign at. So while it's all well and good to get 30 listings in a month, if they're signing them below our average management fee, that, that adds no value to our asset really in the long term. So if they can achieve full fees, they're going to get a higher rate and they get, as I said, get paid per property. So they're incentivized to keep pushing um, to create that income that they'd like for themselves. And how much leeway do you give them in negotiation? Um, we've got about a 2% variance in our management fee that we're, we're able to look at. We start at 8.8% in, in our market. That's pretty on par with our competitors. 
for multiple properties, obviously there is room to move. They all understand the value of the management fee and the importance of upholding the value of the asset. So room to move is more around our additional fees, such as uh, an inventory fee or a letting fee, rather than actually touching that management fee. Got it. So am I hearing that you essentially do not allow them to negotiate on the letting fee? Look, we need to understand that we're running a business and we need to know what our bottom lines are. They do have room to move, as I said, by about a percent or two, depending on the amount of properties. There's no value in losing a property worth $5,000 to the asset for half a percent. So they use their common sense there, but it's certainly not the go-to fee that would reduce. Got it. And now what about connecting their performance to the long-term performance of the property? For example, if it's a, if the property turns out quickly or if it's just a low-end property, not in terms of the management fee, but in terms of the overall rent, the area, et cetera, do they have any connection to the quality of the property that they're pushing into the portfolio? No, but that's a really interesting point. I guess in Canberra, we don't really have any really bad areas as such like there's not an area we don't service in our market so I guess we're fortunate in that respect they do use their common sense around the fact that if they believe that the property is going to cause a lot of grief for the property manager around maintenance or a state of disrepair then they're not going to pass that on to a team member because that's just not what we do culturally equally if the owner's really unpleasant or unreasonable not all business is good business they're happy to walk away from someone who's only going to make life difficult for people in the long run Hannah, how do you think about growth of the business overall? When you think about adding doors, are you more focused on the priority of how the business as an asset will cash flow? Is there conversation about the value of the overall asset, the overall business in terms of the underlying asset in the event that there was an acquisition? I know we've gone from like super low level to super high level, but how do you think about growth and making that investment in acquiring new doors relative to the cost and and the long-term ROI? I think if anything, it's really important that the team understand both components of that. Uh, not just the new business team, but also the property management team. If if we lose a property, for example, due to a client being unhappy, the PMs are actually aware of what that's cost, not only annually on management fee income, but also the cost that's made or the discount that's taken from the actual value of the assets. So having wow. those conversations and making that really aware for our people, I think actually adds depth to their service because they actually realise, hey, losing this property isn't just my incentives for my month. It actually actually is costing my business, you know, X amount of dollars. And that that creates a real awareness among the team. What's the basic math that you walk them through to illustrate what a property is worth to the business gained or lost? Yeah, well, we get them to do the sum. So uh, off the top of my head, it'd be weekly rent times occupancy. So in our market, that's 52 weeks times the management fee. So let's say 8.8%. That would be the income. So that would, on average, we might be looking at you know, 1600 or so income per property in a year. And then we times that sum by $3 as the multiplier for our marketplace. So again, on average, we're looking at about $5,000 value per property in our market for a rent roll. But is, is that per year or are you talking about over the lifetime? No, that would be if it was to be sold. 
Wow, that is so awesome that you're connecting the dots with them. And hmm. they don't actually understand the importance of it otherwise. They know that it might affect their monthly incentives, but they actually need to understand the impact that can have on the business and the flow and effects of that might might affect training budgets, might affect conference opportunities. So it's really important, I think, that we're transparent about that. That is a writer downer for those of you at home. One of the ways to elevate the culture and the thought processes and the overall ownership is just simply exposing your team to the economic realities that they are participating in. All of this underlying math, all of this reality is happening. The question is, do they feel connected to it? And the connection first starts with awareness. So I love that you're doing that. Makes a ton of sense for me. Taking the metaphor a little bit further, when you talk about the overall uh, within the management team, when you talk about the overall growth of the company, what is the trajectory of the organization? Where are you guys headed over the next five to 10 years? Our goal at the moment is to be signing 100 properties a month. So to break it back wow. down, that's that's our team's goal. That's obviously gross. I mean, when we look at net, that equates to around a growth of 50 to 60 properties depending on cancellations with sales and owners moving back in. So we're really trying to grow quite aggressively. We'd love to see sort of 10% growth year on year with business as usual, but that's really before we get into the really exciting stuff around automation and technology and artificial intelligence where I believe we can take our business sort of to double in the next couple of years if we get that piece of the puzzle right. When I hear those words, it oftentimes kind of strikes me as a little bit of a buzzword, right? We've all heard about AI, automation, et cetera. Where does the rubber meet the road? And near term, where do you have the most optimism of how that could actually impact your business? Well, I mean, if we look at a property management role as an example, so much of what they do is one, it's admin-based, and two, it's repetitive. And so anything that is either admin-based or repetitive, there's capacity there to simplify or to streamline, to outsource, or even to automate. So, for example, we're just testing um, software that we've, we've been developing around when a new tenant is approved, the sign-up is booked. And from the point of the sign-up being booked, uh, emails automatically go to the tenant, to the owner, to the property manager, the lease is automatically created based on the application information that's been provided. The sign-up's done electronically, and as soon as it's signed, the signed copies then are distributed to all parties. So using that as one very small part of the life cycle, that's going to save, and we're testing at the moment, but that's going to save each team member close to half an hour work for every sign-up. And on average, we're doing about 120 new sign-ups a month. So it adds up pretty quickly. Wow. So you guys are really in that position to where you have enough scale to actually experiment with these sorts of things. For a smaller company managing, let's say, 500 units, what you just described would be completely untenable. Because did I hear you correctly? This is actually software you guys are developing in-house? Uh, not in-house partnership. So yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see it come together. And obviously, the success of that part of the process will uh, inform which parts we tackle next. Um, and we're overlaying that with a bit of a time analysis of where, where our team is spending most of their time and trying to really understand those pain points from a time perspective so we can decide what to tackle next. How do you do that? What does time tracking look like currently? What would you like it to look like? Um, So we're about to start that actually next week. For a full week, each team member in every job role will track every time they spend across a day, what they're doing in that time based on the core tasks that we think they're doing. So that'll show quite quickly if they're spending sort of 
six hours a month doing rent reviews or CMAs, how can we streamline that process? How can we free them up to get in front of clients rather than be stuck behind a computer doing admin? How long do you plan on doing this for? In terms of tracking the time, it'll be a week, Correct. a week on, a week off, and then a week on. And from there, we'll analyze the data. The reason we, we think we only need to do the two-week chunks is because we've got so many of the repeat roles. We've got 18 PMs oh, yeah. and six leasing consultants. We'll be able to cross over that data across different staff members to get a pretty good feel for where the time's been spent. Wow. This is incredibly exciting to me. So here's where I'm connecting the dots. I'm connecting the dots to two moments in my past. One was a book that I read called The Effective Executive by a guy named Peter Drucker, which is a management theorist and guru, really smart guy. He writes in that book about a experience that he had doing high-level consulting for a CEO of a multinational company. And when he got into this consulting engagement, the first thing that he did, getting paid a princely sum, was simply to follow this guy and to track how he spent all of his time. And when he actually went back to that individual, that CEO, and showed him the reports, the CEO was incredulous because he was spending the vast majority of his time on tasks that he, admittedly, of his own of his own words, did not assign a lot of value to, acting in a very reactive fashion. That's one data point. The other data point I'm thinking of is a speaker named Darren Hardy. I heard him speak in the States. He's a motivational speaker, consultant, etc. And he talked about the turning point in his real estate career being the week that he wore a stopwatch around his neck. He tracked every task and wrote it down. What he realized was that after doing that for about a week, he was spending about two hours working on actual proactive selling activities. The vast majority of all the other time was reactive sort of stuff. So I wish I kind of wish we had done this interview like four weeks from now because I'm super interested on, on what the results are going to be. But what I'm guessing is that you're anticipating that there are potentially going to be some surprises from where you're assuming the time gets spent to what it actually looks like. So you'll have to you'll have to let us know how the results of that go. I sure will. I sure will. It's all about finding where the high value points are and removing the low value stuff, isn't it? So I'm, I'm pretty excited to see how it pans out as well. Time tracking, uh, in terms of how you're going to do that, I'm just curious if you can use software, spreadsheets, pen and paper. How are you actually going to facilitate this experiment? Um, we're running it just because of the we've got 42 team members in the office. So we're going to run it as a like a survey monkey. So they'll just submit at the end of every day. They're just to submit a survey on the computer. The idea is that the time tracking shouldn't take a lot of time. Uh, there's a real, you know, possibility that you get bogged down in trying to track it all when that's not the case at all. Uh, So they'll just do that at the end of each day and then uh, we'll analyze that data at the end of the two-week trial. Totally makes sense to me. Well, if you're listening at home, I'm inspired. Consider doing this yourself. It's a one-week, well, I guess two weeks total of time and the insights that come out of that could be absolutely tremendous. We all talk about departmental, portfolio, but so many times these conversations are had in a data impoverished environment, meaning it's opinion versus opinion. So starting off, at least just tracking and seeing what really is, how the time is being spent, that sounds exciting. Here's another thing I want to ask you about. In terms of analysis, what kind of analysis do you do on the quality of the portfolio? How often do you take a look at the bottom 10%, bottom 20% of your portfolio? And what does that kind of analysis look like? Basically, properties that that are maybe potentially underperforming or dragging the overall business down. Yeah, to be honest, we haven't looked at that. 
the bottom 10 or top 10%. That will come into play with the, with the program that I mentioned earlier around uh, health checking and identifying where there are opportunities to really maximise capacity to buy additional property. But equally, that comes back to the conversation of potentially selling property that isn't performing where it needs to. So that ties into that conversation with clients, but not just to sell the property. Obviously, that's good for our sales team, but then to have the client buy another property that can perform better for them. So that's actually what we're working on at the the moment to roll out this year. So I'm thinking more on the level of clients that where you're managing the property and it's just a very high effort client. Uh, Do you guys have a process for firing clients? Does that ever come up? I mean, surely you have difficult owners that at, at times you just realize it's just not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. From time to time, that does happen. Our new business team are pretty good at making that call uh, when they first meet with a client. However, obviously, people's circumstances change. You know, stresses can come unexpectedly for people and that can really change the relationship. And from time to time, we have had to let clients go. It's not something I obviously like to do. Uh, But at the end of the day, if people are causing serious grief for my staff, that's my number one priority and I'm not going to let them be spoken to in a way that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's, that's a huge morale issue if employees feel like management doesn't really have their back. Yeah, absolutely agree. So I want to transition to the rapid fire section of the interview. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I'm just looking for guttural answers from you. I know that you're not functioning in a BD role currently, but you have done it in the past and successfully at that. So my question for you is, what is the most frequent objection from prospects that you would hear back in the day, and what was your response? I really didn't get too many objections, and I don't mean that to be uh, cheeky. I think it comes back to the conversation before you even have to try to close the client. And so I would spend a lot of time qualifying clients, uh, understanding their needs, understanding their fears, and really tapping into that part of it. So the objection was actually answered or the concerns were actually answered at the very start of conversation. So come to actually you know, a trial close or a close, I would I would be listing sort of 98% on the spot. I very rarely came up against objections, but that was because of the groundwork I put in at the start. I love it. So you leaned into the discovery process and you were pitching against what they had already told you as opposed to your, your own talking points. Yeah, exactly. So the objection could be overcome before there was any talk about our actual services. It was just tapping into their concern, overcoming that. I guess if I had to pick an objection generally, it's fees. Um, In our market, there are competitors that are much lower than we are. But again, by building on the value of understanding what the client's concerns or main focus was, you could overcome what the fee conversation before it really became an issue. It was just a question more than anything. Next question. What is the most overused selling point that you hear agencies leading with? I will look after the property as though it's my own. (laughs) Ah, I love it. Awesome. Who do you learn from? To be honest, I learn from my team. I find them really inspiring. Um, I find them to be really resilient. I, I think, you know, seeing them overcome challenges as they face, I learn from them every day. I don't really have a mentor as such, but I do love reading. I do love TED Talks. Um, so I'm sort of like a sponge. Anything around me, anything I can learn, I'll take on. But I wouldn't say it's one or two individuals. What about books, podcasts? Are there any specific books or podcasts that, that um, you're a big fan of? Yeah, you've mentioned um, Drucker. Like, I, I really like his work. 
I, I really like reading books that are more holistic in their teachings and in their learnings. So I'm a big believer in mindset and mindfulness, and I think that can be applicable across real estate in particular because of the nature of the job. So um, I read a lot around that space. I finished just reading a book recently. I think it was called Sim- Simplicate, which I really loved, and also another book called Slow. Um, both of those I highly recommend. And I do a lot of training courses as well and go to a lot of local conferences because I find it really beneficial just to meet other people and hear their stories. Love it. So it sounds like you're a a lifelong learner then. I think we have to be, don't we? No doubt about it. Leaders are readers. Hannah, what is the biggest threat to your business? If we don't move quickly and innovate, the biggest threat to our business is ourselves. I know that the buzzword of disruption is thrown around all the time and I believe that there is a time and a place for disruption, but I truly believe if we can be agile in what we do and we can continue to understand and meet and exceed the needs of our clients, disruption becomes less of a conversation, particularly because we have to remember in the property management relationship, we've got an owner and we've got a tenant. And for disruption to truly work, we need both of those parties to buy in. But if either of those parties just loves us and thinks we're the bee's knees, it's never actually going to work regardless of what it looks like. Yeah, totally agree. And well, so you brought it up. I mean, I'll just I'll ask for a little more detail there. What are the flavors of disruption that you hear people talking about most frequently? Yeah, I think comparisons of businesses such as uh, Uber and Airbnb are the, the no-brainers. They always get brought up, particularly at real estate conferences. I think in both of those instances, we're looking at businesses and markets that didn't meet the need of the consumer. I think in real estate, there's many opportunities for that. I think we certainly don't always get it right. And I know that property managers, unfortunately, don't have a great reputation despite the great work that so many of them do. So I think a lot of people with a lot of money see that as an easy easy target. But I think the difference is until you're actually in that industry and you understand the complexity of it, it's actually really hard to tackle. Yeah. I mean, it's a people problem. I think there's a lot of good reasons that with fragmentation and just the nature of the overall work being done, that uh, there's a lot of good reasons that disruption will have a hard time. And there's a lot of good reasons that property managers can disrupt themselves rather than having it being done for them. Absolutely. And that's sort of our mindset. How can we disrupt ourselves and make ourselves better before something else comes along and does it for us? Final question of the day, Hannah, if you could do it all over again, what advice would you have given to yourself at the beginning of your career in property management? Um, That's a good question. I think at the beginning, I was pretty naive. As I said, I jumped into it without really understanding the value of the role as a property manager. For the first sort of six months, at the very least, I very much viewed myself as a task-based person who had to tick a box, who had to send an email just so it was done. And it took me a while to learn the real opportunity to actually change people's worlds by making their life easy. And we can do that as property managers. We get to be really close to people. It's their homes, it's their money, it's their biggest investment. And so I wish I'd known earlier and I wish I understood earlier just how valuable that relationship is if we get it right. Really inspiring. Hannah, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. If folks want to learn a little bit more about you and the company that you work for, what's the best place for them to go? Uh, Well, we're undertaking a complete overhaul of our website and uh, social at the moment. So I'd suggest if people are keen to learn a bit more, they're welcome to contact me directly on email or, or by phone. So email is hgi at independent dot com dot au and the best number to catch me on is zero two six two zero nine one four zero nine and i'd love to chat with you 
Love it, guys. So you got an open door to chat with Hannah. She's been in the trenches and the BD function has worked her way up and has an exciting vision for where her company is headed. I just want to remind all of my listeners, I do not have a fetish with Australia. I genuinely think that these folks are doing some really interesting work. And I think that the parallels are strong. It's a big turnoff to me when folks say, well, what can property managers learn from insurance or mortgage? But it's even more of a turnoff when folks say, well, what can we learn from somebody else in another country? It's not that different. It's a human to human business. It's the same good and service. So let's harvest and mine more ideas. I found everything you just talked about to be imminently relevant and practical for our stateside audience here. Thanks again for coming on the show. Let's stay in touch. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.